The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We come in our study of this magnificent epistle. We come this morning to a detailed description of the glorious terminal stop of our personal salvation, the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. Christ will raise all of his followers from the dead. And by the same power that enabled him to create the universe to begin with, will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. And he can do this. He has the power to do this. His miracles done in his time of ministry on earth that we read about in the Gospels, river of miracles that he did display effortless power over sickness and suffering and death. Effortless power. Paralyzed man healed in an instant. Demon-possessed man healed in an instant. A leprous man healed in an instant. A blind man healed in an instant. A bleeding woman healed in an instant. A dead little girl healed in an instant. But what then? What happened to each of those people? What happened to all of them? Some other malady or maybe even the same malady later on took them out of this world. But all of these signs and wonders, these miraculous healings point ahead to a comprehensive, a perfect and a permanent healing of the body by resurrection. And that's what we get to talk about today. As we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we get to talk about the description of the resurrection body according to the Apostle Paul. What will the resurrection body be like? Look at verse 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And the context is Corinthian doubts or questioning about the resurrection of the body. Look at verse 12. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some people in the Corinthian church that actually didn't believe in bodily resurrection. Paul has to address them. And he has to go to the root cause of their questions, or we could even say their questioning. And their questioning came from unbelief. They didn't believe that God could do this. And we addressed this last time. And Paul rebukes their skepticism, their foolish unbelief. Look at verse 36. He says, how foolish, or literally in the Greek, you fool. And how I I felt that all of us, even if we're mature Christians, should stand under that rebuke and let it have its work on us. We shouldn't say, oh, those foolish Corinthians. We should realize we share a tendency toward the same foolish unbelief of God. We, we share that same nature with the Sadducees who Jesus said are in error because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Is any of us, even the most mature among us, going to be saying, I know the scriptures as perfectly as I should and I know the power of God as well as I should? None of us will say that. We're still under that foolishness. 
that we don't really know the scriptures or the power of God like we should. And when it comes to the resurrection, it goes that far. So those Corinthians just couldn't believe God could actually do this. And they raised logistical questions about how it could even happen. And we addressed that last time, the foolish root of unbelief. But now we're going to get to the actual answer to the question. With what kind of body will they be raised? He's going to give some amazing insights into the nature of the resurrection body. The kind of bodies we Christians are going to have as we walk through the streets of the New Jerusalem. The kind of bodies that we're going to have as we explore the dimensions and beauties of the new heaven and the new earth. As the kind of bodies that we're going to have as we sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and feast with him. What kind of bodies will we have? He gives details. And he does it by contrasting the resurrection body with the mortal body. The resurrection body is contrasted with the mortal body. Look at verses 42 to 44. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So it's a set of four couplets. It's a kind of a compare and contrast. Remember English class? We had to do the compare and contrast thing. So we're going to be comparing and contrasting the mortal body with the resurrection body in these four pairings or couplets of words. Perishable versus imperishable, dishonor versus glory, weakness versus power, and natural versus spiritual. Let's take them one at a time. First, perishable versus imperishable. The body that is sown, he says, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Now, perishable means able to die. Able to die. A synonym for mortal, we would say. But it also implies a a certain process of decay, of degeneration. We think about perishable goods. Um, All living things decay in some degree. The decay uh, comes from a bacterial growth that produces nasty odors. Perhaps you've noticed them from time to time in your refrigerator. And you have to root through and find what in the world is causing that. And finally you find that Tupperware that you put in the back of the bottom shelf about six months ago. It's perishable. It's decaying. It's corrupting. Now while we live there, even in our bodies, no matter how healthy, there's still a process of cellular decay going on. Uh, Romans chapter 8 makes it very plain that all of creation is groaning in bondage to decay, waiting for the children of God to be revealed in their resurrection bodies. So that's going on all the time, but this process obviously just really takes off after death when you talk about the corpse. The body that is sown in the ground is a corpse, and it is perishable. It is, it is sown, it is perishable. The decay just takes off. Psalm forty-nine, fourteen. it says, like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. Death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. 
Or again, as Martha, the sister of the dead Lazarus, reminded Jesus when he said, remove the stone, by now there is a bad odor for he's been there for four days. That's the process of decay that happens normally after death. So the body that is sown is perishable. It will become a rotting corpse in the grave and death will feed on it. But the body that is raised is raised imperishable. Imperishable. It cannot die and it cannot decay. It will neither decay nor die, this resurrection body. It will be pulsating with life for all eternity. Revelation 21.4 says there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and all things, everything is made new. Our resurrection bodies will live forever. They are immortal and there'll be no aging process in, in, in heaven, no diminishment of our capabilities over time. The time is infinite and uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, your eyes will still see the brightness and glory of the new Jerusalem like the day that you first began. You will have no diminishment of eyesight. Your eyes won't become dim as Isaac's did, or your hearing will not lose its sharpness over time. You'll be in eternal health, forever healthy in the resurrection body. Revelation 22.2 says, speaks of the river of the water of life flowing uh, from uh, clear as crystal from the throne of God and on each side of that river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit for every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's a mysterious verse because he already told us there'll be no more death, mourning, crying or pain but it seems to me that feeding from the tree of life and living forever is an ongoing dynamic process by which God sustains our resurrection bodies. It's not an independent, all by itself, immortal body, but it is nestled in the ongoing purpose of God in sustaining the resurrection body in perfect health forever. It is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. Second couplet, second peri, dishonor versus glory. It is sown, the body is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There is an essential dishonor to dying and to death itself. First of all, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We die because of sin. And we are dying just as humans because we are part of Adam's progeny, his descendants. We are dying because of our connection to Adam. Even if we never committed any sin like Adam did, you think about infants that die in infancy, didn't sin as Adam did, but they still die because they're human. But then once we understand the, the law of God, the moral law written on our hearts, we violate it every time. And so we die because we have sinned. We have violated the laws of God. And that is dishonorable. So the aging and death process is dishonorable. It strips us of honor. And death itself is the ultimate dishonor. Now funeral directors and pastors and families can gather at that time and seek to do the best they can to put trappings of honor on the deceased. And I understand that, and I think it's reasonable. Military death, for example, will drape a, a, a flag on the casket and then f fold it up with great ceremony. Uh, there might be a 21-gun salute. These are given to, uh, to give a certain honor to the deceased. Uh, others may just, at the time of the funeral, come up and, and give testimonials of the, of the significance of the person's life, how they lived. 
So there's an effort to put honor at that time. But when it comes to the corpse itself, there's a dishonor to death. And we feel it when we walk into, the, into, into nursing homes as people are, are elderly and they're dying and, and you look at what's happening to their bodies and there's just a dishonor and, uh, to death, to dying and death. But the resurrection body is raised in glory. It is a glorious body. It's characterized by glory. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Matthew 13, 43. We're going to be radiant with glory. We're going to be shining like the angel <clears throat> that bore the news of Jesus' birth to those shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Remember, he was the glory of the Lord shone around, and we're going to shine like that. We're going to be radiant in glory. Christ will bestow a, a radiant beauty, a, a shining glory on his bride. He's going to make her beautiful. He's going to deck her out with glory. She's going to be staggeringly beautiful. The angel, Revelation 21, 9 through 11, wanted John to see the future glory of the new Jerusalem, the assembled people of God. And he said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now that's the, the New Jerusalem, the, the city, but the city are the people in some mysterious way. We are living stones assembled together and radiant and beautiful. Every individual Christian will be in a glorious resurrection body. And every one of them will be perfect physical specimens. Our bodies will be perfect, beautiful to look at, stunning in appearance. There will be an essential honor to being a redeemed person at that point, to being a Christian. It will be an honor bestowed on us. And Paul talks about this in Romans 2.7. He said, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give them eternal life. So you should be all after this. I am looking forward to glory, honor, and immortality for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm preaching for that right now. That all of you would be glorious, honorable, and immortal in your resurrection bodies. But you should seek it too. And that's how you live. By persistence in doing good, you seek glory, honor, and immortality. To those people, God will give eternal life. Aaron the high priest was clothed with special garments, priestly garments, and Exodus 28.2 describes the reason why. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. So they were bejeweled garments. They were really special garments. And, and I think of the resurrection body that way. We're going to be clothed in honor. The resurrection body is essentially honorable. The third couplet. Weakness versus power. Weakness versus power. Verse 43. The, the corpse, the body, is sown in weakness it is raised in power. The corpse is the very picture of weakness. Now, weakness has to do with inability. Power is the ability to make a change in the physical world. That's what power is, the ability. So to be weak means you don't have the ability to make any changes. You don't have the ability to do anything. Uh, you can't, you know, can barely pick up a, a feather or a piece of paper if you're, if you're just weak. And so elderly people generally... 
Uh, there are exceptions, but generally become more and more frail, more and more weak as they go on. And they have trouble doing even basic physical things. They have trouble feeding themselves and, and dressing themselves and even chewing their own food. This is just normal aging, and it's part of that dishonorable process that we're talking about. We lose power. We don't have the ability to do things we early, earlier could do. But friends, this, this text ultimately is not talking about elderly people. It's talking about the corpse. And the corpse, we're not talking about that it can't do much. We're saying it can't do anything. It can't move. It's dead. It has no power at all. This is the human body at its absolute weakness, at its lowest point. Overcome by death. It sinks down into the grave and it cannot stop a single thing from coming to feed on it. Completely powerless. It is sown in weakness. But it is raised in power. It is raised in power. Now please don't misunderstand. I'm not minimizing the power of God or of Christ to do it. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the power in the body itself. It is a powerful body. Just as the body was characterized by weakness, it is then characterized by power, all of which comes from God. Now, at this point, your imagination may be running wild. You've watched too many superhero movies, and you're trying to think, all right, what special ability do I get? What am I going to do? Am I going to be like Superman, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound? Will I be able to fly? Will I be able, like the angel that came down in Matthew 28, to move the stone, remember, and let the women in, and let John, Peter and John in to see the empty tomb? The angel comes down, Matthew 28, 2, and rolls back the stone effortlessly and sits on it. It's one of my all-time favorite angel positions. I picture his angelic legs dangling on the stone. Utterly fearless of the Romans. They're terrified of him. They're like dead men. But he's radiant and glorious, moves the stone effortlessly and sits on it. Or like Samson, for example, and, uh, who when the Spirit of God came upon him in Hebron, ripped up the city gates, pillar and post, carried them up and threw them over a hill. Now that's impressive. So am I, Pastor, am I going to be able to do those kinds of things? Will I be able to fly like the seraphim? They have those wings by which they're flying. Will I be able to go in swift flight? All I can say to you is, I don't know, maybe. Maybe, maybe, and more maybe. But I'm not here to speculate. I'm here to tell you the word says it is raised in power. And so your body will be limitless, really, in power. For all eternity, you'll have limit. Now, I don't believe you'll be omnipotent like God. But I think of it this way. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. This is probably the safest meditation we can do on the power of the resurrection body. It says there, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So think of it that way, especially that last phrase. Run and not grow weary. Never, you will never get tired in the new heaven, new earth. You won't need to sleep. 
You don't need to renew your strength. There'll be a constant flow of the power of God into your resurrection body giving you that kind of strength. Now for me, for exercise, I like to ride a road bike, a racing bike. And I have let my imagination run wild on this. I say, oh Lord, if you would just give me, and no one else, a resurrection body, I would enter the Tour de France. And I'm telling you, I would go up the Pyrenees, and I would go up the Alps, and I'd go back down to encourage those laboring up the, the mountain and say, come on, guys, you can do it, come on. And I'd go up and down and up and down, and I'd set records, and I would be tested for performance-enhancing drugs. People would not know what to do with me, but I would have that kind of energy, that kind of strength in my resurrection body. All right, enough of that, because I'm going to get into dangerous speculation here. It is raised in power, the fourth couplet, the most mysterious of them all. Natural versus spiritual. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is mysterious because those two seem to be very different. Body, spirit. Material, immaterial. How do they combine? It's interesting, the the Greek philosophy that I think is at the root of their philosophical problems with resurrection is that they really made a distinction and said, physical body is evil, spirit good. Paul, with these words, combines the two perfectly, absolutely combines. I think that this is very significant for a combination of heaven and earth, like heaven and earth become one. All right, the throne of God descends and is in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and new earth. So new heaven and new earth all becomes like one thing for me. And God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because there's a oneness there and it comes right down to the body. It's a spiritual body. Now I don't really know what that means. The stuff out of which our bodies will be made will be essentially spiritual. And it seems like, and we're going to meditate on Jesus' resurrection body in just a minute, but it seems like it follows different physical rules. The physics seem different. So uh, beyond that, I, I really can't say. But summation, our, our mortal bodies are perishable, dishonorable, they are weak, and they are natural. Our resurrection bodies will be the opposite of all four of those. They will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Now let me just stop and say, if that isn't enough to encourage you, meditate more. If you're a child of God, Paul says openly that your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in you in this resurrection body. So be filled with good cheer. Be filled with hope at your future, no matter how much suffering and pain you're going through. All right, now, the eternal pattern of our resurrection body is Christ's resurrection body. Paul calls Christ's resurrection body first fruits. Look at verse 20. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that implies a harvest of like fruit coming in the pattern of the first fruits. There will be a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation raised in the pattern of Christ's resurrection body. Jesus himself promises in John 6, 39, 40, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. He says I'll raise him up at the last day multiple times in John 6. He's going to do this. Now Paul openly uh, 
connects our resurrection bodies to Christ. Look at verses 45 through 49. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now the reference to Adam is the reconnection from the earlier theme he already opened in this chapter uh, of federal headship of the unity that we have in Adam and what we get from Adam. Look at verses 21 through 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul teaches first Adam and last Adam. First Adam, last Adam. So in verse 45, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. This is the doctrine of federal headship. What does that mean? It means a single individual represents the whole group before God. He represents us. So Adam represented us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. He represented us. He stood for all of his unborn children and made a decision on their behalf that affected them greatly, grievously. And so the Bible teaches that we all sinned in Adam and therefore we die in Adam. This is the doctrine that's called original sin. The doctrine of original sin. Paul said in verse 22, in Adam all die. We die in Adam. He develops this theology more in depth in Romans 5, 12 through 21. And there he says, not just that we all die, we all actually sinned in Adam. So that's what original sin means. We sinned in Adam, positionally. God sees it that way. In the same way, we all were righteous and obeyed in Christ. Christ represents us as the last Adam. And so he stood before God, stands before God on our behalf and represents us to Almighty God. It says in Romans 5, 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Isn't that incredible? God sees you as obedient as Jesus if you're a Christian. Isn't that incredible? Positionally, you are as obedient to the law, to the purposes of God, as Jesus. He obeyed on your behalf. So Paul then takes that theology and applies it to the body. Genesis 2.7, he speaks of God forming Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. So he came up out of the dust. But then when he sinned, he came under the death penalty of Genesis 2.17. Remember in Genesis 2.17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a death penalty. And so he ate the forbidden fruit, and he did not die right away, but he died, I believe, instantly spiritually. He was dead in his transgressions and sinned spiritually at that moment. And then the dying process began. It took a long time, centuries. Uh, he lived past 900, but he eventually died. And this is the judgment of God on Adam and indeed on the whole human race in Adam. Dust you are and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19. 
when Adam and Eve came together in marital union, the children they bore were born in the likeness, the image and likeness of their father Adam. It says it very plainly in Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So Seth represents kind of at this point all of us. All of us descended from Adam. We were born into the likeness of our father Adam. And that means we were born into his corruption. We're born into his death. And that's the truth for all of our bodies. We're born with mortal bodies. So the moment we're born, to some degree, we begin dying. But then he links uh, the parallel between Adam and us and then between Christ and us. Look again, 45 through 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The sequence is plain. Adam came first, then Christ. Adam's children uh, are, were born to die like him. Their bodies were born to sink back into the dust from which they came. We bore the likeness of the earthy man. So, the second Adam, Christ, makes an infinitely greater impact on us. One of the rhythms of Romans 5 is not just that the first Adam is like the second Adam. One of the key themes is the second Adam is greater than the first Adam. The impact of the second Adam is greater than the impact of the first Adam. What's so glorious about all this is that the impact of Adam, the original Adam, on us is temporary. The impact of the last Adam is eternal. Isn't that glorious? I mean, think about that. We have a temporary journey to travel in sorrow and sickness and affliction and death, and then it's over. And the impact of Adam, the first Adam, will be done. But the impact of the last Adam is eternal. Christ is, he says, a living or a life-giving spirit. And his resurrection body is eternally alive. And we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. And we will derive our eternal life in our resurrection bodies from Jesus. Forever connected. He forever will be the vine and we forever the branches and our resurrection bodies receive life from Jesus. He is a life-giving spirit to our resurrection bodies. Now let's talk about the mysteries of Christ's resurrection body. I mean, you've read the gospel accounts. It was, it was interesting. I don't want to use the word odd, but it's just interesting how his body was and how it was received. First of all, Christ's resurrection body was a physical body. They kept thinking he was a ghost. They actually thought that when he was walking on the water. They kept, I don't know if there was a ghost theology back then, but they, they were thinking Jesus was a ghost. He has to push that aside. He says in Luke 24, 39, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have, listen to this, flesh and bones as you see I have. So we're going to bear the likeness of, this, of the last Adam. We're going to have flesh and bones. Resurrection flesh, resurrection bones. We'll be able to touch each other. We'll be able to pat each other on the back. It's physical. Secondly, Christ's resurrection body looked like a normal body to observers. The disciples on the road to Emmaus thought he was just a stranger in Jerusalem who needed to be better educated on current events. Haven't you heard what's going on? He just looked like a normal guy. 
Mary thought he was the gardener. So he just looked like an ordinary human. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection body could eat food. In Luke 24, 41 through 43, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. So he's able to chew and swallow food. All told in the Gospels and in Acts, five different times, Jesus' resurrection, post-resurrection times with his disciples centered around food. Centered around food. And so we have that sense of being able to sit at banquet table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and eat heavenly food. It's a mystery, but we'll be able to sit at the great wedding feast of the Lamb and celebrate. Fourthly, Christ's resurrection body had some kind of mysterious continuity with his earlier body. So that body was raised. It's not some entirely new creation in that sense. There is a continuity, thus we use the language of sown, raised. There's a connection. We see this especially in the wounds on his body. Remember how Thomas said, unless I put my finger in the nail marks and my hand in the side, I will not believe. And he said to Thomas, put your finger in the nail marks, put your hands in my side, stop doubting and believe. Now I think that Jesus' wounds are are an anomaly when it comes to the resurrection body. Many terrible injuries happen to the human body that takes people out of this world. Car accidents, burning, um, battle wounds, you know, you can imagine, just total dismemberment, etc. I don't believe that we will carry over any of those scars into our resurrection body. I think there's just something unique about Jesus' wounds. He is the lamb looking as if it had been slain. So that forever there, but he could easily have had no wounds in his hands and side. But I, the point I'm making here is continuity. His body, that's the body that was nailed to the cross and is raised from the dead. So there is a, a continuity. But there's also difference as well. People who knew Jesus very well in life didn't seem to be able to recognize him. Like I said, Mary thought he was the gardener. She knew Jesus very well. I'm sure she studied his face. She knew his facial expressions. She understood what, you know, his love for her by that. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus knew Jesus, but they didn't know he was Jesus. And it wasn't until he took bread and broke it that their eyes were open. And actually the text says they were kept from recognizing him. So there was something God was doing in the minds of the observers, but maybe also there's some kind of difference in how he appeared. Matthew 28, 16, I think that probably is when the 500 eyewitnesses were gathered. There was a huge gathering there of the 500 that saw him after his, after his resurrection that Paul mentions, 1 Corinthians. I don't know for sure that that's Matthew 28, 16, but it says when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So a group of those people that were seeing him weren't really sure what they were seeing. And so he looked different, but in other times he looked just like they recognized him right away. Sixthly, sixthly, Christ's resurrection body could do some amazing things. This is where you get into like the different physics. I don't, I don't know how it works. But uh, sudden appearances, just there. Just there. And so like in the upper room in Luke 20, 24, 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. He's just there. And uh, also on the flip side, sudden disappearances. So with the two disciples in the road to Emmaus, he eats, breaks bread, their eyes are open, they realize who he is, and he's gone. He just disappears. He's able to travel through, through physical walls. 
Some theologians, Wayne Grudem, question this, uh, but they, he zeroes in especially on the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. So the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Then a week later, the doors are locked for fear of the Jews, and he comes and he comes. But the real question for Wayne Grudem, for anyone else, and I don't think he denies it, but how did he get out of the tomb, friends? How did he get out of the tomb? Please don't say the angel came down and let him out. I mean, that's so dishonoring. That didn't happen. It's like, please, I'm waiting for the angel. Knock, knock. And then the angel comes and he can get. No, he's gone. He's already gone. The stone was moved so they could get in and see that he was gone. He just passed through the stone walls. How does that work physically? I don't know. I don't understand. That's where spiritual body maybe comes in. It's the mystery of what a spiritual body is. Christ's resurrection body, free forever from death and from all pain. As we've already said, but Romans 6, 9 says, we know that since Christ died, or since Christ was raised from the dead, sorry, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's done with death. He's done with all things. So all of these aspects of Christ's resurrection body, in some sense, will be ours as well. And they give us some insights into that pattern. Christ's resurrection body is a pattern for us, as Paul makes plain. Verse 49, just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. All right, what applications can we take from all this? A lot of theological truth here today. A feast of truth for us as Christians. Well, first, I just want to speak to any that are listening to me today to make certain that you actually are born again. The, the promise of this resurrection into Christ's glorious resurrection body is made for his people. It's made for those that hear and believe the gospel. He will give to them eternal life. He will give to them this glorious resurrection. So are you a Christian? Have you trusted in Christ? Just because you come to church or even because you watch a church service on live stream doesn't mean that your sins are forgiven. Be certain that you have trusted in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he said to Martha, do you believe this? You have to believe that Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for you and rose again for you. Trust in him and that you'll receive the gift of a resurrection body. Now, if you're already a Christian, rejoice and trust in Christ Because Christ lives, you also will live in the same pattern. So just swim in the sea of Paul's statement in Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I don't know what your circumstance is. Some of you are battling chronic pain, chronic illness. Medical community maybe can't do anything more for you. Or you know someone like that and you're having to be a caregiver. There could be other afflictions. We... We live in the land of the shadow of death. We're under the shadow of death all the time. We're surrounded by people under the same shadow of death. We Christians need to be of good hope, don't we? We need to be filled with hope. And this resurrection message has the power to make me filled with hope. For me to not be afraid, to not grieve like those who have no hope. When Jesus went to Jairus' home and saw a huge crowd and this massive commotion, all these people crying and wailing loudly... You know what he said? Why all this commotion? Why all this wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. Let's rejoice that we are seen even in death as asleep. 
That's the same language used here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to raise us as though waking us up from a sleep. So let's not grieve like those that are hopeless. And let's not act like people that are hopeless. Let's be filled with good hope. And set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's 1 Peter, uh, Peter 1.13. There is a grace coming at the second coming of Christ. There is a grace to be revealed. Set your hope fully on that. Don't trust in idols. Don't trust in current event idols. Don't trust in the idols of this world that other people trust in. We don't set our hope on those things. Those things are, are evanescent. They, they will not bring satisfaction. They're idols. Set your hope fully on the grace that's given you when Christ returns. And don't lament the destruction of your own body. Don't spend a lot of time trying to look a lot younger than you are. All right? Don't, I mean, don't worry about, you know, I'm, I, there are all kinds of ways that we can look younger. Don't worry about it. Be what you are. <laughs> and, and, and realize your best days physically are yet to come. I'm not saying don't take care of your body. Do take care of your body so that you can be energetic right to the end of your life here on earth, serving him and not sidelined because of maladies that you didn't have to have because you didn't take care of your body. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is your best days are yet to come physically. Don't lament the aging and dying process. Don't fear it. Fifthly, look forward to an amazingly active time in the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. All right? I am totally against boring heaven. It's a lie from Satan. Heaven will not be boring. God is not going to raise you up out of the grave and give you this kind of a resurrection body. Glorious, surging with energy and power and give you nothing to do or give you a harp and tell you to sit on a cloud and strum it. You are going to be so busy and so energetic in the new heaven, new earth and you'll have enough energy to do all the good things God has for you to do. So be excited about that. Sixthly, don't speculate too much, okay? Don't speculate too much about what it's going to be like. I was reading one author, Robert Wilkin. He wrote this. He said, the other day I found myself walking behind two small children following their grandparents. The little girl, perhaps five years old, was rhythmically hopping across the lawn, delighting in the quickness and flexibility of her body, oblivious to what was around. The grandparents were healthy, able folk, not elderly, yet they moved more deliberately, prudently, looking down lest they slip. Later in the day, I watched a very elderly man with a walker shuffle into a hardware store, tiny step by tiny step, each made with a great act of the will. Thinking medieval thoughts, I wondered, which body will we have? That of the child, those of the middle-aged couple, or that of the man with the walker? What will be raised in the resurrection? The medievals asked these kinds of questions. Will there be differentiation by gender in heaven? Will, there, will we all be the same age? If so, what age? Will limbs that were crippled or amputated be restored? What of those born with deformities? Will we have internal as well as external organs? Will a child that dies in infancy be raised an adult? Into what will aborted fetuses rise? Now, St. Augustine in City of God sought to answer some of these for us. So but he's not inspired scripture. This is just what he thought. Here's his opinion. This is Augustine. It remains, therefore, that we conclude that every man shall receive his own size which he had in youth, though he died an old man, or which he would have had, supposing he died before his prime. So if you're like short and you wish you could be tall, that's kind of discouraging. But anyway, I'll just keep reading. 
All shall, all shall rise, neither beyond nor under youth. For even the world's wisest men have fixed the bloom of youth at about the age of 30. And when this period has been passed, the man begins to decline toward the defective and duller periods of old age. So he's setting the age at 30. Look, friends, all of that, all of it is speculation. Don't go beyond what is written. Zero in on these words. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study. Uh, It's just a lot of truth, a lot of theology to take in. But God, give us grace to understand it. and Give us grace to have the proper emotional response to it. That we would rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That we would not let our trials and temptations and afflictions get us down. All of them are temporary. That we would not get the fact that we have so much uh, of a proclivity toward decay and corruption to get us depressed, that we would be filled with good hope and that people who are as yet unsaved, who are without hope and without God in this world will look on us and see a different kind of radiant hope and ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org and may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.